Morning. How are we? <laughs> that doesn't sound very encouraging. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> oh, dear. I want to speak a little bit about the nature of love this morning. Uh, in his first letter to the Corinthian church, Paul speaks about their meeting together, their, their coming together, their lives together. And really what he says to them is, it's a mess, guys. <laughs> it's a real mess. And we see all of the different things that are happening. And in chapter 12, he begins to speak about uh, how they're using spiritual gifts. Uh, they're using them in a very selfish, individualistic manner to exalt themselves. And, and he's trying to say to them, the gifts... These gifts you've been given, they're, they're for the benefit of the whole body, not just you as an individual. It's not to glorify you, it's to build the body up. And the way you're using your gifts, they're, they're creating division and jealousy and arrogance and, and all manner of unwholesome behavior. And he finishes chapter 12 with this, this statement. Now I will show you the most excellent way. He's very clever. You know, he, he's, he's revealing to them the stupidity of their, their way of life, the way they're, they're, they're running church, the damage that that's causing and doing to, to individuals and to, to the witness that they have to the, the rest of the Corinth. And what he's doing to them here, he wants to bring them a new perspective to show them something different. And so rather than just rebuking them and saying, you're a bunch of idiots and you need to get yourselves together and you need to get sorted and fixed. And he says, he appeals to their ego. You see, this is what's happening. They're, they're, they're a church full of great egos. You know, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Peter. You know, or I speak in tongues. He said, yeah, but I do miracles. And so there's all of these egos. And Paul says, yeah, you, you've got all that stuff, but I'm going to show you an excellent way, the most excellent way. And it, he grabs their attention because they're suddenly like, oh, there's something better than, than this. He's very clever, the apostle. He's, he's saying, I want to lift you up even higher than you think you're lifting yourself up and show you the most excellent way. To show you a life better than you had ever imagined. And then we go into chapter 13 of, of 1 Corinthians. It's not really a separate chapter. It's a run-on because this is the most excellent way that Paul is speaking about. And he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. And we often read the, all of this at the, this, these scriptures at uh, weddings. <laughs> but Paul is actually using it to, to highlight the dysfunctionality of their church and their church life. And I, over these years, as I've been discovering his love and his love being poured into my heart, I've realized that I often read the scriptures without realizing what they were saying. I would approach scripture and read it, but with a certain mindset. I would think, what do I have to do? You know, I've been so conditioned, I think many of us have been so conditioned to believe that the effectiveness of our Christianity is measured by what we do. And so when we read scripture, we come with a question in our hearts, in our minds. What must I do to be the Christian God wants me to be? And so when we read Corinthians 13, we think, how do I do love? And it, it, it is often presented that way, that there's a demand upon us to do something, to do love. And so we begin to plan ways and create ways to be loving and do loving things. We adopt certain behaviors to prove that we are loving. We write books all about it. Actually, what we're doing when we come with that approach, when we come and think, what do I have to do 
Okay, I have to do patience. I have to do kindness. Okay, how do I do that? And then I, we, we, we begin to think of ways of doing kindness. I know, I pay for the, the toll fee for the car behind me and the bridge. I'm being kind. And we're actually proving Paul's point. You know, we can do all kinds of things. You can be super spiritual. You can do all manner of good deeds. But if they're not flowing out of love, then they're worthless. And they mean nothing. And you gain nothing. That's what he says in these first few verses. So much of what we do in Christianity, what, much of what we practice in Christian life is a waste of time. Because we have just learned to do the right thing. Rather than allowing love to lead us. Who decides what is the right thing? In Jesus' day it was the Pharisees, wasn't it? They decided this is the right thing and you've got five books of, of Moses and they wrote about 100 or 600 books or something explaining how you kept the law of Moses. It's like walking into a Christian bookshop. We write books explaining how to do Christianity. How to do the right thing. But it, it's crazy because the right thing varies from culture to culture and country to country. In fact, it, it varies even within countries. I was, I was saying to John last night, one of the examples in Germany, in the north of Germany, having a cigarette is no big issue. But if you have a beer, you've probably committed a mortal sin and you're going straight to hell. In southern Germany... If you don't have a beer, you've probably committed a mortal sin. <laughs> beer is normal in southern Germany. But don't smoke a cigarette because you'll become a, a social leper in the Christian community. That's crazy. Those are the standards of right and wrong and they're different in this, within the same country. Do you see how ludicrous this is? The right thing? You know... <laughs> One of the things that really bugs me is, I hope no one's wearing one today. You know, the WWJD, what would Jesus do? It's impossible to know that. It's impossible. Those are the stupidest things I've ever seen, those bracelets. Jesus only did what he saw his father doing. It's impossible to know what Jesus would do. I, I, I remember listening to a, a, a radio show on Radio 1 or Radio 2 many years ago. And these guys, not Christians, but they found What Would Jesus Do website and all of this merchandise and they had What Would Jesus Do pants. And I thought, by the time you get down to your pants, it's too late to ask that question. <laughs> so, so we wrestle with this whole idea of what is the right thing for me to do here? My wife was made redundant in July and so she's looking at jobs again and saying, Father, what's your will? Is this job your will for me? And he said to her, Fiona, you're asking the wrong question. And she was startled because you know, she'd been asking that question her whole life. God, what's your will? And it was a couple of days before he said to her, she wasn't getting there and she said, come on, tell me, what's the question? I said, Fiona, what you should be asking me is, will this bring me life? You see, it's interesting. The church father, Irenaeus, he said that the glory of God is man fully alive. What brings you alive? There's the will of God. What brings you alive? But we read things like love is patient and love is kind. So we, we practice being patient. We practice being kind. And we read that love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And I think we've misunderstood so much of what it means to walk with God. 
And the scriptures have become almost like a recipe book. This is how you make a Christian. Mix it all together and hey presto, you have a Christian. But it's an awful lot of effort. And we put all of our effort, all of our will into, our, into fulfilling this prescription because this is what a Christian should look like. And therefore, I need to put into place these things in my life. I need to put into place patience, kindness. I need to not be selfish and self-seeking. I need to be forgiving. The interesting thing is, Paul doesn't say, if I do not do love. Paul says, if I do not have love, it is nothing. He's not saying, this is what you have to do, guys, to prove that you're loving. He's saying, this is what it looks like when you're living a life of being loved. He's saying, this is what love will produce in you, in your heart. He's speaking about the internal motivation of your being. He's speaking about your heart and he's telling us, if love is not in your heart, if your heart is not in the place where it knows love constantly being received, then all of your efforts at spirituality are a waste of time. All of your efforts at producing the fruit of love, all of the great things you do, the sacrifices, the miracles, they are nothing and they mean nothing in kingdom value. You see, it's all about your heart. Proverbs 4 tells us, it said, guard your heart for from it flow the issues of life. All of life, the way you process life, the way you understand life comes through the prism of your heart. And that's why my life was so difficult in, in, for so many years because the prism of my heart was darkened by trauma, by all kinds of stuff. And I interpreted life through that prism. And you know all of these things we do, all of these great sacrifices and all of the great ministry and everything else, you know God's not looking at it. He's not watching it. He doesn't see it. That's what he tells Samuel. Samuel goes to Jesse's house to anoint the next king of Israel, Saul's replacement. And he comes into the house and there are seven of the sons there. And he sees Eliab, the oldest son. He's tall, he's broad, he's handsome, he's a soldier. And he thinks, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Surely this is God's man. And the Lord said to him, do not consider his appearance. I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And he's saying, all of that stuff that you do, and everyone says, what a great Christian she is. Oh, what a man of God he is. It's all rubbish. The Lord's not watching that. He's looking at your heart. And Paul's saying, is there love in there? Paul's saying, love will put these things into your heart. It's not, he's not saying it's your job to replicate loving deeds but to live in a place of receiving love and allow that love to transform us from the inside. Allow love to produce these things in us. Now John tells us in, in his first letter that we love because he first loved us. In other words, we're only able to give out of what we receive. Jesus said something similar when he said, freely you have received, now freely give. And so many of us are running on empty trying to do the good Christian thing, the right Christian thing, but we're empty. And Jesus said, whatever is in the heart is what will come out. The good person will bring good treasure out of the good stored in his heart and the evil person will produce from the evil treasure stored up in his heart because it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. 
You know, sometimes we, we, we say things and do things, we explode in anger. No, is that just me again? Okay, sometimes I explode in anger and, <laughs> and might say, oh, I'm really sorry, that's, that's not really me. It is, you know. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. <laughs> what is in our hearts? And I told the story last night. Was anyone not here last night? So, part of my journey, I was, I went to a weekend retreat at LL Ministries. And while there, something came up about my dad because my dad died when I was 11 years old and I didn't really get the chance to grieve for him. I was sent away from the house and didn't go to the funeral and all of that kind of stuff. And so this all was stirred up in my heart. And this, this man took me into a little chapel to pray and he said, you know, John, you need to let go of your dad. You're still 11 years old and you're holding on to your dad. You need to let him go. And I, I just couldn't pray any words. I couldn't get anything out of my mouth until he said to me, John, let your dad go. God wants to be your father. And, and that released me to curse God. I said, no, you took my dad from me. You're not taking his place. Out of the overflow of my heart, my mouth spoke. I had no idea that was in my heart. And it was an obstruction and an obstacle to the love of God. You see, God has been loving me since the day I was conceived. But because of the condition of my heart, I wasn't able to receive or be aware of that love. And it's the same for, for many of us. He's here loving you right now. The question is, is your heart aware of that? Or, or like me, are there things in your heart that are saying, get off, stay back, keep out? I was a pastor, I was a church leader, I had no idea that stuff was in my heart. So what's in our hearts? Is there patience in our hearts or are we just trying to do patience? We pray those silly prayers, don't we? God, teach me patience. And then all this trouble starts and you're going, God, what are you playing at? Why am I getting all this trouble? And I said, oh, I'm sorry. You weren't serious when you prayed that? <laughs> you know, do we have patience with those who are slower than us on the road when you're behind the wheel? That that that, that answers that question. <laughs> do we easily become jealous when God is blessing other people? Other people who aren't as good a Christian as me. I mean, I deserve that more than them. Why is the pastor asking them to preach? And not me? How, how do we act when people offend us? Do we retaliate? Are we rude in return? Are we selfishly ambitious? Do we share people's secrets out of prayer concern? You understand? so that their reputation goes down a little bit and ours goes up? Do we hold grudges? Because love keeps no record of wrongs. And we struggle and wrestle with all of these things in our lives, trying to become the Christians that we think God wants us to be. trying to change ourselves because that's what that's the message the subtle message that we're often given in modern Christianity you have to change yourself you have to become a more improved version of you and you have to do all of these things in order to make that happen you, you're supposed to be like Jesus so start practicing being like Jesus how many of you realize that that doesn't work that you're actually not like Jesus at all. I'm convinced, I've become convinced that the only thing powerful enough to change my heart is love. 
And when my heart is being changed, the motivation of my life becomes different and I begin to live differently without too much effort on my part. I've realized that doing the right thing doesn't change my heart. My efforts at doing the right thing don't remove all of this negativity from my heart. And I've come to the conclusion that, quite frankly, it is a ridiculous thought that we can change ourselves. It's impossible. We can labor to do what is right. We can try our our hardest, but still, our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Paul wrote that, didn't he, in, in the book of Romans? It's interesting, we, we apply that to people who are not yet believers. And we say to them, the Lord says that your, your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Paul didn't write that to non-believers. He wrote that letter to a Christian church. And said to them, your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And he echoes that in Corinthians 13. You can do all of these wonderful things. But it means nothing unless you have love dwelling within you. You can do all of these lovely things and nice things and wonderful things. And the problem for us is, I think, our identity is so often rooted in how well we do and how we perform. As though performance determines our worth. My wife said an interesting thing once. She she asked me, What is the opposite of play? So I want to ask you, what is the opposite of play? Work, drudgery, yeah. Work was my my automatic response. And she said, no, you're wrong. I said, well, what is it then? And she said, it's depression. Because if your worth is determined by what you produce, you will never play. Because play doesn't produce anything. You will never have fun because fun doesn't produce anything. I thought a lot lot about that and actually, yeah, I think there's there's some truth in that. You know, this is a serious business, this kingdom stuff. No. How, how can you go to Spain on holiday when people are dying and going to hell? <laughs> I've heard stuff like that. Seriously. And what Paul is trying to get through to this church is, I don't care what you're doing. I don't see love amongst you. And that is the most excellent way to live in love and allow love to overflow your being. And as as you learn to allow love to dwell within you, love will produce patience in your heart. Kindness will become an automatic behavior. Selfishness will lose its grip on you. Anger will will stop controlling you. I remember once I was driving uh, in a 60 zone and the guy in front of me was doing 30. You can imagine how happy I was. And I was saying, oh, Father, I'm so angry. I'm so frustrated. I want to get to this meeting. He says, I'm frustrated. You know what it's like? <laughs> and he said, no, John, I don't. <laughs> All right. He said, I don't get frustrated. Because God is love. And love is patient. So when you mess up, when you screw things up or you get it wrong or you fail or you fall or you're broken or you sin, God doesn't get frustrated by that. He doesn't get upset by it. Because love keeps no record of wrongs. You know, we go to him and say, oh, I've done it again. He said, done what again? You know that thing I always do? I've no idea what you're talking about. Because love keeps no record of wrongs. Paul said that when Jesus died on the cross, God was not counting men's sins against them. 
It's a little bit of a different thought about the cross, isn't it? God was not counting men's sins against them. Or women's. And so we think of all of these love things as actions that we need to take, deeds that we need to do, but the scripture is really speaking about a disposition of the heart. So when the Bible says love is kind, it, it's speaking about someone who lives out of the kindness that, that is in their hearts already. And I've tried, but I can't reach inside and put anything into my heart. So how does it happen? Well, I'm just learning to be the little boy who needs to be loved and allowing him to pour his love into my heart. Consciously being aware of that. Paul says in Romans that the Holy Spirit sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts. He says that in Romans 5.5. 5. And so I'm learning to draw on that love and allow that love to, to find a dwelling place within my heart and begin to live out of that experience of what it is to be loved. Because unless I'm experiencing kindness, I can't know what kindness is. I can observe it and say, that's what kindness looks like. And I can mimic the behavior of a kind person. That doesn't make me kind. It just makes me a good mimic. It's in experiencing kindness that you understand what kindness really is. A lot of us struggle with receiving kindness. When someone wants to bless you and you, oh no, 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 Dana, I possibly, I couldn't, no, no, that's, I'll, I'll pay you back, I'll, I'll, and you feel as though you have to do something in return. Because that's how the world works. That, that's how the orphan system of the world works. You do something for me, then I owe you. That's not how the kingdom works. And so many of us in Christianity have become good mimics. We haven't really become kind people or loving people. We've just become good mimics. I think a lot of what we're taught in modern Christianity is actually a parody of reality. You know, I think Protestantism has gone away from the whole heart thing. Because I, I was taught that, you know, Jeremiah said, the heart is, is deceitful and unreliable. Who You know, you can't trust it. We read that in Jeremiah 17. Who can know it but God alone? And so we've got this whole thing like, well, I can't trust my heart. So I, I can't go with what's in there because my heart is wicked and deceitful. But we're forgetting Ezekiel's prophecy, aren't we? I'll give you a new heart and I will put my spirit in you and cause you to, keep my, to walk in my ways and keep my commands. So if you've been born again, you have been given a renewed heart. And I wonder if perhaps our discipleship, I don't like that word, but I wonder if it should be focused more on learning to discern our own hearts. Learning to live with an open heart, receiving love, and then walking and how we're led by the Spirit in our hearts. If he's put his Spirit in us to lead us in his ways, why do we need to be able to tell the difference between right and wrong? Because he gave us his Spirit to teach us how to walk in his ways. So the Spirit shedding abroad the love of God in our hearts will teach us how to walk in patience. He will teach us how to walk in kindness. He will teach us how to forgive and keep no record of wrongs. And when the love of God begins to touch our hearts in, it, in any depth, it will change our perspective. The eyes of our hearts will, will see differently. And I guess that's what's been happening to me over the last 10 years. You know, as... I mean, I can stand here and I can see you guys, but if I stand up here, you look very different. There's less of you hidden behind someone else or behind the tables. 
And what his love does in our hearts is give us a new perspective. We begin to see things from a different view and actually more clearly. We begin to see things as they really are and not as how they've been presented to us. It makes a huge difference. I, I, I often say that if, if I met myself from 10 years ago, he would think I'm a heretic today. Because love is changing the eyes of my heart. Allowing them to see. Shedding more light. And I'll talk a little bit about the eyes of the heart this afternoon. And when we begin to see differently, we begin to live life differently. We begin to behave differently. It's not something we have to work up to or discipline ourselves to do. When love changes your perspective, the things that you once saw as as frustrating and enraging and annoying, they will be no more than a minor irritant, if even that. You know, I was was at a meeting uh, with a friend and speaking to someone and said goodbye to the person and my friend became very angry about how this person had spoken to me and behaved towards me. I had no idea what he was, ta- he was speaking about. I had no idea. I was, what do you mean? He was fine. He wasn't rude or... I just didn't see it. Now, I wish I lived there all of the time, but I still visit that other place sometimes. <laughs> I just had no idea because love is changing my heart and has been over these last 10, 11 years. I came back from one of the A-schools that Karen was speaking about in York at the end of August. Went to bed that night, and when I got up in the morning, our house had been broken into. A lot of stuff gone, a couple of thousand pounds from the A-school and uh, my MacBook and a few other bits and pieces. The the most surprising thing for me is that I've not had to forgive anyone. I just don't feel any animosity. I'm not even angry. I just think, okay, Father, you know what's going on. You'll, you can sort this out. You can make this up if it needs to be made up. That, that's not who I was just a few years ago. I remember a long time ago, I'll just put the, the tape on pause. Just pause the tape. I don't want this on... And so I don't even have to forgive that person because it's just not, there's just nothing, um, there's no animosity towards them. I know who it is. The police have caught him. I know who it is. I know where he lives, but I've got no interest in doing anything about it whatsoever because I've got a father who's much bigger than that and he knows what I need. And I trust him to provide what I need. You know, love doesn't boast, it's not selfish. In other words, love isn't focused on itself. It doesn't look inwards, it looks outwards. That's why Paul writes in, in Philippians, consider others before yourself. Not, he's not talking about practicing self-denial. That's not what Paul is saying. We've interpreted it that way. You need to deny yourself and God gave me this, you know, someone gave me a gift of a hundred pounds. God, what do you want me to do with it? Who do you want me to give it to? What? He gave it to you. You know, we think, well, but I'm just a steward of God's gifts. No, if you give a gift to someone, they do with it as they please. You know, God's no different. If God gives you a gift, you do with it as you please. See, if love is dwelling in your heart, you will not be focused on yourself. You will be focused on others. And Paul is saying, when love is in your heart, you will consider others before yourself. You don't have to practice denying yourself. Just looking out for others will come naturally to you when love is dwelling in your heart. And living love is the key to this. Learning to live as a loved person 
But unless you have the perspective that you are worth loving, that you are lovable, that you are beautiful, you will struggle to receive love. You will have difficulty in loving others. I want to, I want to show a video just now. Um, and I just want you to put yourself in the position of one of these people in the video and see which one is you. This is a, a college experiment. So which are you? Are you the one who doesn't quite believe you at the moment? Are you the one who becomes violent? I was the one who would just push love away. See, you were created in love. You were birthed out of the very heart of God himself, where all beauty resides. You were birthed out of and in beauty. And love being poured into our hearts begins to give us that perspective of ourselves. We begin to understand that I am loved. I am lovable. But unless we have that perspective, what we do is rather than respond to the love being poured into our hearts, we live a, a kind of life that's looking for a reward. That, that we will earn love. We're like the son in Luke 15. I'll be a servant in my father's house. Or I've been slaving away for you for years. And I don't get a reward from you. You know, we all, we all want the gifts that get us noticed. I want to be a prophet or I want to do miracles and all of that kind of stuff. But those things will one day disappear. And Paul is trying to point that out to them. You know, all of this dysfunctionality as you, you demonstrate how gifted you are, it's all going to disappear one day. And he's saying, let love dwell in you. If love dwells in you, love will produce these things. It will produce these characteristics. And you will have patience, you will have kindness. And I guess that's really what this whole revelation of the Father's love is all about. Learning to live in the place of being loved and allowing love to transform us. I've done all of the Christian stuff of trying to transform myself and it doesn't work. What happens is I can become self-righteous, proud, arrogant, act all superior and it, all it is is a front for my insecurity and my fear and everything else. My realization that I can't make the mark, but I have to keep pretending. You know, I'm no longer interested in getting a touch from God. I don't want to be a tram car that goes from jolt of power to jolt of power. I'm learning to dwell in love because it's the most powerful transforming force that I know of. His love poured into our hearts will transform us from the inside out. Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians 3. He says that as we contemplate, as we behold his glory, as we look at his beauty, we are being transformed into his image. From one degree of glory to another. And it almost seems as though as we read the scriptures, we, we, we just we can't see them. We can't see what they're actually saying and, and we're just like the Pharisees. You know, Jesus said to them, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. That's in John 5, um, verse 39. And Jesus said, these are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I think we live the same way with a complete misunderstanding of who he is. And so we read the scriptures out of that place of misunderstanding. And I'm learning, I guess the biggest thing that's happening to me is 
I'm understanding and realizing I lived for so long with a misconception of who God really is. Really misunderstood him. And Christianity today teaches us how to live a life that is rooted in misconception of God. I want to look at this, some of that this afternoon. I could do it just now, but then you wouldn't come back after lunch. So, <laughs> you know, his love is for us. He has always been on your side. And until recent years, I've, I've always lived that way. You know, episodes of having a touch from God. Oh God, I just need another touch from you. I'm going to the meeting because I need a touch from God. You know, and get, I get that touch and I'm, I'm charged up and I'm ready for the battle again. One, one thing I've learned is that the battle was won 2,000 years ago. Don't know what it is we're trying to fight. But the battle was won 2,000 years ago. And so what he wants to do is really to pour the substance of his love into our hearts. Into the very depths of our being because that's where love has been missing. The love that we didn't know as, as children or, or even as young adults or even as grown-ups. You know, because of all the confusion in, in my family, not only was the receiving of love... Um, Limited, but the demonstration of love was limited. See, little little kids learn not just from direct interaction, but as they observe love going on in the family. So, as they observe the way mom and dad love each other, or siblings love one another, or they they absorb that and and it teaches them. It brings something of wholeness to their hearts and their souls. But for many of us, that has been missing. For me, it was. I. I have no memory of, of seeing love demonstrated because it was all about surviving and so in the depths of my heart I, I didn't know love I didn't understand love I, I didn't know what to do with love when it was presented to me love was strange and foreign thing to me and it, it was something that weak people needed I understand now it's something that we all need because we're all weak. We're all broken. And what we do is we try to hide our brokenness with good Christian performance. You know, there was a time when someone like myself, I would have thought, was disqualified from ministry because I, I still take medication. Be careful, I forgot to take one this morning. <laughs> I'll get through the day, don't worry. <laughs> but, you know, there was a time when my rigid mindset was thinking, well, you're no good to God. It's absolute rubbish. Look at the people that God used in the Bible. Peter had a big mouth. Moses didn't want to speak. David was a, an adulterer and murderer and a terrible father. And yet God said he was a man after his own heart. <laughs> what he wants to do is pour the substance of his love into our hearts and meet the need of our hearts. That, that sense of being orphaned in our hearts that drives us to perform, to, to try and be the best or causes us to retire from, from life. And his love is not some airy-fairy, fluffy cloud thing. You know, I, I quite often hear people present this revelation as some kind of fluffy, Daddy loves you. And it's more than that, it's something of substance. You know, I can walk into a room full of people. I don't like doing that because I'm an introvert. I know it doesn't look like it when I'm standing up here, but I actually am. I'm a, I'm socially, I'm, in, I'm introverted. Um, but I can walk into a room like that and, and, and catch my wife's eye on the other side of the room and I can feel her love. Now she hasn't said anything or she's just caught my eye but something of substance connects with my heart. Because love is substance. It's not just an ethereal idea or concept. 
You know, it's not just something that was demonstrated 2,000 years ago on the cross. That love is still flowing today out of that cross. That's love that we can experience, that we can live in the substance of. I'm not talking about getting a shiver up your spine or, or rolling on the floor, as much as I love those things. I'm not against them. <laughs> but that's not the love of God. It's something much more solid in our beings that begins to fill up this brokenness, this emptiness, this lack within us that gives our lives more solidity, more foundation, and enables us to just be who we were created to be and not the person that everyone thinks we should be. When we know what it is to be loved in that way, when we know love deep within our beings and begin to learn to rest in that and live in that place of being loved, love begins to find a dwelling within us. It begins to permeate our whole beings. And then we begin to see the fruit of love growing in our lives. The fruit that, that Paul speaks about in Galatians 5. Goodness, kindness, patience, long-suffering, all of that stuff. The interesting thing is, as I read through this in, in 1 Corinthians 13, that the other thing that comes to mind is what John says in, in his letter. You know, I think one time, someone must have said to John once, you know, tell us what God is like. You know, you were with Jesus, tell us what God is like. And the only thing he could think of was God is love. Someone once said, just the same as rain is wet. <laughs> it just is. And it's not that God has love, but he is love. And it's, so it's not just that his love has been poured into our hearts. It's some, somehow it's, it's abstract from him and it's something, he's saying, here, you can have this, but I don't want to come near you. <laughs> I think we still have that idea of God having to stay separate from us. But actually, if he is love, when love has been poured into our hearts, it's something of God himself that's been imparted to us. That's what happened in the garden. When he breathed into the man's nostrils, something of himself was imparted to the man. Something from within his own being caused the man to become a living soul. And so when he pours his love into our hearts, he's imparting something of himself to us. It's not just speaking about what love produces in us, but it's speaking about how he treats us, how he approaches us. And he's patient with you. Peter tells us that, doesn't he? That the Lord is patient, not wanting any to perish. He's not frustrated with you when you're not getting it right quickly enough. He's not proud and boastful. He's not sitting up and high judging you. He humbles himself to come to you in your brokenness and your weakness. He's not rude. You know, the voice of God doesn't sound like someone going, What the heck do you think you're doing? That's not the voice of God. If you thought that was the voice of God, then you've been deceived. And it's not all about him. You know, my friend said once he, he, he wanted to see the Lord. And he did, he saw him. And he said the one thing that stood out to him was as he looked in his eyes, he realized there's nothing in there that's thinking about yourself. It's all about others. And the fact that God is love means that his focus is not on you pleasing him, but in him loving you. He's not easily angered. When you get it wrong, he doesn't raise his blood pressure. He doesn't need any meds. He keeps no record of wrongs. This is incredible because the whole thing that we have underlying our doctrine and theology is that God keeps a record of our wrongs. That's, that's one of the foundations of Christian theology. God is keeping a record of your wrongs and you have to please him and keep him happy. You have to be in a continual state of repentance 
And Jesus defends you from him. The whole courtroom scene, you know, God is the judge and Jesus defends us. And that's an invention of, of Anselm, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury. That wasn't an early church thinking. But he's keeping no record of your screw-ups and your failures and your failings. He's not bearing a grudge and saying, yeah, you didn't witness to that person 20 years ago. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to make you an evangelist anymore. Love keeps no record of wrongs, and God is love. And as he pours his love into our hearts, we will learn what it is not to keep record of wrongs. There will be things that won't even impact our hearts. We won't notice wrongs. Love can come to dwell in us to such a degree that we don't notice someone has done us wrong. Like me with that, that person at the, the, the Christian event. I still don't believe that they did anything wrong. I think my friend just read the situation wrong. He doesn't delight in evil. We have, we have this... Different, different branches of Christianity have, have this idea that God sends trouble to us in order to teach us. But it says here that God doesn't delight in evil. Life happens and in those events of life he may use them. But he doesn't put difficulty upon you just to see how you react. What an appalling father. What a horrible dad that would do that to their kids. He only ever speaks loving truth about who you are. Not who you think you are. Or not who other people want you to be, but who you truly are. Beautiful. Delightful. He always protects. He has your back. And I want to speak a bit about that on Sunday night. I'm going to look at Jesus on the cross. What that says about his father and what it says about Jesus' relationship with him. Love always trusts. And we talk about trusting God and having faith in God, but actually, love trusts you. If he didn't, he wouldn't give you gifts. He wouldn't give you opportunities. He wouldn't give you life. He trusts you with all of that stuff. Love always hopes and always perseveres. You know, sometimes people think that God has given up on them. That's the falsehood. He's never given up. From before the foundations of the earth, he conceived you in his own mind, in his own heart. And he saw you like Christ. And he's never given up on that dream for you. He knows what he's purposed for you, to conform you to the image of his Son. And so it's not just that love in us produces these things, but it's him actively loving us in these ways which enables love to take up residence within us and produce this kind of life within us. So it's not something abstract that he sends to us, but he himself is actively involved in imparting of himself into your spirit, into your heart, that enables you to live in a place of being loved that produces the effects of love within you. Patience, kindness, goodness. Father never fails. You know, life has taught us that people fail as people let us down. For me, the whole concept of God as a father was just, it was meaningless. Because my father was a man in a bed who I did things for. Fathers didn't do anything for you, didn't give you anything, didn't do anything with you. And so it, it was just entirely meaningless to me. And often we interpret God that way. People fail us and so God is just like the people around us. He fails us. But Father never fails. Regardless of what circumstances look like, He never fails you. His love makes us like Him. Paul says everything's going to disappear. These supernatural gifts, 
there one day, one day there'll be no more. And in heaven there will be no prophets or apostles or teachers or worship leaders or intercessors or evangelists. But as we walk with him and his love fills our hearts, the childish behaviours of impatience and rudeness and selfishness will all be put away. And we will see him face to face because we shall be like him. And the wonderful thing about this is, this is something that lasts the rest of your life. It's not something you have to get finished for Sunday. And it can be overwhelming to look at Scripture and think, this is what I have to do. But Paul's insistent that unless you have love, then no amount of of work or service or anything else, no amount of performance covers up that lack. And we can achieve things in our own humanity. We can set goals and, and get them. We can even grow churches that way. You know, I was an entrepreneur before I was a pastor. I run nightclubs, I manage bands, I put on events. And I just applied that to church. And we can do that. Put on a good performance, a good production. But I wonder how much eternal significance that has. Because Paul said that in the end there are only three things that remain. Faith, hope, love. And love is the most excellent. And as we learn to open our hearts to receive that love, to live in that place of being loved, it changes the way we approach life. changes how we approach relationships and ministry. In fact, we don't, I no longer see myself as having a ministry. I believe that when we begin to live in a place of being loved, we become a ministry. And actually what happens is that you minister out of the love, out of the life that he's put within you. And that's what ministers to people. And all the performance stuff that I, I knew and occasionally will still fall into That was just trying to hide my brokenness. That was just the fig leaves of Adam. But I'm learning to take those off, to accept that I'm broken. And that that will never be fully healed until Jesus comes back. But he still wants intimacy with me. He still prepared a place at the Father's bosom for me. And just learn to come into that place and let his love be poured into my heart, poured into our lives, changing from the inside out. And his patience produces patience in me. His kindness produces kindness in me. His gentleness produces gentleness in me. Anger is less prevalent. Rudeness is not quite so ready to come out of my mouth. And hope and perseverance and all of that other stuff is there. Growing. And love has an eternal quality that our temporal giftings don't have. You know, Paul said that, doesn't he? Whether our prophecies, they will cease. Or whether our tongues, they will, they will end. There will be no more. But love has an eternal quality. And so many people are waiting to receive his love because they've not felt it. And I I don't know what people expect. But how did you get saved? Did you get saved because you felt salvation? Or because you believed that, that you needed Jesus? You see, I don't always feel his love. But I can stand here right now and I'm convinced and absolutely assured he's loving me right now. There are moments when I really feel that love. But at every moment, I know it's happening. He's loving me. And it's not about whether you get a feeling or or have an experience. It's learning to open our hearts, learning to deal with the barriers and obstructions of our hearts and saying, let love come and dwell. Let it find a dwelling place in here. Father, thank you that you're doing it. And as I walk that path, I'm seeing what love is producing in me. I'm aware of love flowing in my being. The substance of that 
finding a, beginning to find out a resting place within my spirit and within my heart. And I'm changing without trying to do anything. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you don't stand at a great distance and send something to us, but Father, you are actively involved in our lives. That there's an impartation of the very substance of who you are that you want to communicate to us, you want to impart to us. Father, help us to to become little boys and girls who need to be loved. That we, we could come in the simplicity of a child and say, Dad, give me a love. Thank you that you are so ready for that. That that has always been your heart towards us. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your incredible love. Thank you for your incredible patience with us and your kindness towards us. Father, we have so misunderstood who you are. we're beginning to see a little glimpse that you might actually not be the one we thought you were but that you're much nicer and much kinder than we ever perceived just continue to love on us to speak love to our hearts as we we share together as we spend time here together thank you Father Amen. Mm-hmm.